Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And we are going to read the last three verses of the first chapter. 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Lord God, we... You just rejoice to be called your sons and daughters. We are amazed at the grace that you've poured out on us. And we rejoice in the, in the family, the body that you've given us, the church. And now as we read your inspired word, this letter from Paul to Timothy about guarding and cherishing and living in the church, open our eyes wide to behold wondrous things in your law. Soften our hearts to receive the implanted word. Give us ears to hear. Give the increase, Lord God, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move into our fourth week now studying 1 Timothy, I just want to remind us some about the point of this book. I think Paul writes his intention most clearly in chapter 3, verse 14, where he tells Timothy... I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul's telling Timothy, his young protege, his disciple, his friend, his child in the faith, I want to show up and do some things at the church at Ephesus. I, there are some things that I think are important that I want done. And in case I delay, I'm writing you this letter so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, in God's family. The church is the family of God. It's a family of families. And so this title of this whole series is Living in God's Family. Living in the family of God. And chapter 1 so far, if you, if you go back to chapter 1 now, Paul starts off charging Timothy in verse 3 with the primary task that he is entrusted with. Verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul wants Timothy to oversee the teaching content of the church. There's a danger of certain persons. Paul doesn't name them because they aren't progressed far along enough that they need to be outed. Our passage today deals with two men who are named. They've gone so far that they've ended up in heresy. And he wants Timothy to oversee the doctrinal teaching of the church to encourage, to literally charge the teachers to avoid novel doctrines. 
myths, genealogies, things that don't produce godliness, they just produce speculation and debate. And Paul's reason for that is love, which is an amazing juxtaposition. I want you to control the teaching, the doctrine, for the sake of love. Let me spend a Sunday looking at that relationship, and, and we'll go back there again today. And then Paul has to speak about the purpose of the law. And last week, by mentioning the gospel and his commission, Paul goes into a whole section detailing his, his former way of life and the power of the gospel. And in this last section, he's going to close off chapter 1 by returning to this charge. And I'll be honest, this, this passage has been very challenging and convicting for me. Um, it, it was a very sobering and weighty passage. Um, as it talks about the importance of a good conscience in the fight of faith, as it talks about the importance of personal holiness, integrity, um, which, is, which is a frightening thing to realize the, the responsibility that all of us have, but, but especially those who lead have in the church. So let's take a look at the first point here. Paul's charge to Timothy, fight the good fight. Paul's charge to Timothy to fight the good fight. And when I first studied this passage, I was... Um, not sure if the charge that Paul is referring to looked back or forward. What is this charge? And, and the reason why I was a little confused initially is because chapter 2 starts with first of all. And so my initial thought actually was the charge would follow and then the charge would be laid out in chapter 2. Uh, I, I think pretty clearly that's wrong. Um, the word that Paul uses for charge is used twice in the previous section in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then again in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Now Paul hasn't left the topic he started on. In fact, this is clean scene most clearly if you simply read from verse 7 straight into verse 18. If you, if you put the aside about the right function of the law to the side for a moment, and if you set aside for a moment Paul's discourse on the gospel and his former manner of life, it flows seamlessly. Picking it up in verse 7, jumping to 18. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's the same topic. So really, this bookends chapter 1. Chapter 1 has a greeting. Paul talks about this charge to Timothy about fighting for doctrine, purity in the church. He talks about the law. He talks about the gospel. And then he closes the chapter, returning to the topic he's been on the whole time, which is this charge he gave to Timothy. So we're, this is a repeat of, of the charge. But it's not simply a repeat. He adds new information. Here, first of all, he, he refers to it as a fight. The ESV gets it even more literally, wage the good warfare. Really in the Greek, it's war the good warfare. Um, and so Paul understands for Timothy that the task he's given him of overseeing the purity of the church, overseeing the doctrine in the church, at times will be a fight. You know, sometimes, sometimes these things are great. You talk with people, you work with people, you, you, people are willing to be taught, people are willing to be corrected, and other times they fight back. 
Um, and so Paul is telling Timothy to prepare for a fight. Be ready for it, to, to wage the good warfare. And, and this military metaphor is nothing new for Paul. He uses it in many places. And, and there's a duality to the Christian life. On the one hand, Jesus says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's a rest, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace. And yet in other places, it's, it's a war. There's a war on. The kingdom of our God is waging war with the kingdom of this world. And if you've read the back of the book, you know we win. But there's a war on. And it's not the war about political nations conflicting with each other. That, that's insignificant compared to what's going on in the church. What's going on here as we fight for truth, contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's the war Paul's got in mind. And so... The first thing that Paul tells Timothy is to encourage him as he needs Timothy to be prepared to stick it out for the long haul is he references in keeping with Timothy's prophecy. Now, it's a little confusing because we don't exactly know what that reference is. Um, but it seems likely that Timothy was ordained or called or set aside for the ministry he's in in connection with prophecy and, and the Holy Spirit's working. You don't need to turn there, but in Acts 13, 1-4, we read, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work with which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so the early church gathered the prophets and some of these leading men together. And sensing that God was going to commission Paul and Barnabas, they prayed and they fasted. And in that context, the Holy Spirit singled out exactly what he wanted Paul and Barnabas to do. It's likely something similar happened to Timothy. In fact, if you turn the page to chapter 4, Paul will mention these prophecies a second time. In 4.14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And there, there really is the picture of ordination. An affirming work of the leadership of the church that Timothy has been called and here equipped for work of ministry. And, and, and not going into all the incentive, okay, is this stuff going on today? My, my short answer is I don't think so. Um, I certainly haven't seen anything that credibly looks like this. The point I want to draw from this is that Paul is telling Timothy, it's not haphazard that you're here. It's, it's not just accidental that this ministry has been assigned to you. And that the Holy Spirit has equipped you and gifted you. And men in the church have affirmed you. And the point is simply this, that God is going to equip you with what you need for the ministry he has for you. God is going to equip each one of us for the ministry he has for us. It ultimately was not the Apostle Paul who had left Timothy in Ephesus to do this work, but it was the Holy Spirit. And as he's trying to encourage Timothy for what may be a long and protracted fight, Paul hopes to arrive soon, but he's aware he may not. He knows that Timothy needs to be encouraged by being reminded of the equipping, the affirming, and the calling work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Um, secondly, 
that this fight is to be done by means of a good conscience and faith. By means of faith and a good conscience. And this is not the first time we've seen these two concepts come together. Turn back to verse 5. Two weeks ago, we dealt with this section where Paul says that the aim of his charge, the aim of this command that Timothy oversee and, and rein in some of this teaching going on is love. And it's not just any old love, but rather it's love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so, it's not surprising again, and this is again another hint that this is the same topic being discussed, when Paul says, what you're going to need for this fight is faith and a good conscience. And, and the point is this. The, the war, the holy war going on for truth, the power behind it is the power of holiness. It always has been and it always will be. In our men's Bible study, we've been reading Joshua. And right before the battle of Jericho, God's concern for the Israelites is not that they sharpen their swords, not that they do their jumping jacks, but that they become holy. The children have not received the covenant sign of circumcision. And so after they cross the Jordan, now with a river at their back and a fortified city on a hill in front of them, he wants them to basically incapacitate their entire army. Because God's not going to fight for an unholy people. God's not going to fight for a people who aren't obedient and trusting him. And so here, Paul tells Timothy, as you gauge in this war, what you're going to need is faith and a good conscience. And so the, the war for truth can't be done by unholy men. This is part of what makes this such a convicting passage because you realize the incredible importance, the imperative importance of personal holiness. I mean, turn over to chapter 3. What are the qualifications for an elder? Personal holiness and the ability to teach the word. I mean, we're to get there in a few weeks, but the qualifications are rather mundane. Not a drunkard. Doesn't get in fights easily. Hospitable. Doesn't say anything about going to seminary. Doesn't say anything about winning people to the Lord every day. This is just a personally holy man who has knowledge of the word, truth, and personal holiness. The same thing as the qualifications for a deacon. Here, personal holiness, and maybe not the ability to teach the word, but still holding fastly to the taught word. God's leaders have always been holy men, first and foremost, who he equips with his word. These things have to go together. There's a great danger in thinking that you can pursue one and not the other. A.T. Robertson, um, a, a noted biblical scholar, wrote an article about 30 years ago in a Baptist journal um, about diatrophies. He's the character in 3 John who thinks he's all important, thinks he's a big shot, and he church disciplines on his own some people, and he doesn't let other people come in. And, and John writes 3 John in part to sort of expose him and, and shut him down. And so A.T. Robertson wrote this article in a Baptist journal, and he said that the editor of the journal had received, received 25 complaints from various leaders and deacons, infuriated that A.T. Robertson would dare so call them out. 
See, they thought it was written about them. We can't have leadership like that. It's just not going to work. And this is one of the things that the world most rightly holds against the church. It's when our leadership is not holy. When our leaders say one thing, but not another. This is the thing that most infuriated Jesus about the Pharisees. He tells the people to do what they say, but not what they do. Whereas Paul, whereas Paul can say, what you have heard from me, and learned from me, and seen in me, practice these things. Philippians 4.8. Not only did Paul teach it, but Paul lived it. And that's that coming together that's important and necessary for this work in the church. And so from this, I just want to make four observations from this first section of this passage. One, the priority of maintaining sound doctrine in the church. I hope by this point you've got the weight of the importance to this. The, the entire first chapter is largely devoted to this. And he'll come back to it again. Turn to chapter 6. We're in probably the most solemn charge in the book. Paul writes the following. Chapter 6, verse 11 to 14. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. There it is again. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Paul takes this pretty seriously, and we should too. Doctrine is no small matter. Now certainly you can so emphasize and be nitpicky and you, and you miss out on love and caring for people. And we're to get to that. That is a real danger. But the solution is not to simply downplay doctrine because doctrine divides and it's problematic. The solution is to have both truth and love. To have both truth and love. Paul is immensely concerned about the possibility of these teachers just starting to slowly go off track, slowly go off track, start teaching novelties, divisive things, things that don't produce godliness and holiness. And in time, we'll see where that can end up. It can end up where Hymenaeus and Alexander are at, which is not a good place. Secondly, the spiritual warfare is the war for truth. That spiritual warfare is the war for truth. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. You know, there's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare and, and engaging in spiritual warfare and a lot of books written about it. And, and people think spiritual warfare can mean a lot of things. It, it's not about binding demons. It's not about, you know, prayer walks around your city. Those may be good things to do or, or not. It's just not what spiritual warfare is about. The war in which we engage in is the war for truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. Paul talks about the war and the weapons he uses in this war. And, and this is important to get because if we misunderstand the nature of the war, we're not going to fight very well. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm going to repeat that. I want you to notice the sphere that this warfare is in. We destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Strongholds, arguments, opinions, knowledge, and thoughts. You see that? The war that Paul is waging. It's not an earthly war. I'm about earthly kingdoms. I mean, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The war that Paul is waging is the war over what will men and women believe in their hearts about the truth. I mean, isn't that the heart of evangelism, which is the front line's assault into enemy territory? What will men and women believe about Jesus, about their sin, about the cross? And, and, and bringing the gospel to the world is about battling spiritually for the thoughts and beliefs of the hearts of men. That, that's spiritual warfare. And it doesn't stop when they get converted. The battle, the spiritual battle that we're fighting with the devil and the host of, of evil forces in this world is still about what will men and women believe in their hearts? What will they trust? And the battle is going on in the church. And, and Paul's reminding Timothy of this. The battle has always been for truth. The battle has always been for the truth. And it always will be for the truth. It started in Genesis 3 when the serpent said, Did God really say? And it hasn't changed. Battles for truth. It's not a physical conflict. It's not a political conflict. It's a conflict over truth. What will men and women believe? Thirdly, we see that faith and a good conscience lead to sound doctrine. That little arrow is sort of shorthand for leads to. So faith and a good conscience leads to sound doctrine. And, and this is the big point of today's message, is this reciprocal relationship between faith and holiness and doctrine. Because what Paul's telling Timothy is this, if you want to fight and contend for sound doctrine, you're going to need faith and a good conscience. That's what he says, right? I want you to fight the good warfare with this charge that he's entrusted him. And the charge is laid out in, in chapter 1, verse 3. But if you're going to have that fight, Timothy, you're going to need to remember the equipping that you received from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to need to hold fast to, literally that Greek word, holding on to, keeping faith and a good conscience. So we learn that having faith and a good conscience will lead us to contend for, hold fast to, sound doctrine. It leads to sound doctrine. But on the flip side, as we've already seen, sound doctrine should lead to faith and a good conscience. It's the next point. Sound doctrine should lead to faith and a good conscience. Back in verse 5, Paul says that, remember, the, the aim of our instruction to guard truth, the, the aim of our instruction to stop certain men from teaching novelties is love. And not just any old love, but love that f comes from a pure heart, sincere faith, and a good conscience. So there we see that if you want to have genuine love, you're going to need sound teaching. And the, and the middle step is the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith. So 
good doctrine leads to those things and those things in turn protect sound doctrine. And so you get in this cycle where the Holy Spirit will show you something new in his word. The Holy Spirit will convict you of something in his word. Show you some area where you need to either stop doing something or put something on or both. And you grow in the image of Jesus Christ and you grow in your faith and you grow in your holiness. And then guess what? The Holy Spirit shows you something new. And that's the Christian walk. We never arrive. We're growing. And it's always a seeing something new in the word and responding in faith and living it out and being transformed and seeing something new. And this cycle goes on and on and on. And, and it's laid out here. You, you can't pursue one without the other. They go hand in hand. You can't pursue one without the other. They go hand in hand. And you see this clearly if you look over to chapter 4, verse 15. Again, another charge to Timothy. This theme of, of the importance and the inseparability of sound doctrine and holy lives is just seen over and over in this epistle. From the qualifications of leadership to here in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, Paul writes, Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, let everyone see your growth in holiness. Timothy, let everyone see your godliness. Keep a close watch on your life and on your teaching. Because that's the way the salvations could be worked out in your life and in the life of the church. You've got to watch your life and you've got to watch your teaching. Because they, they feed into each other. A knowledge of the truth must lead to a living out of the truth. And a genuine living out of the truth is what's going to guard the truth and bring us back for more truth. And, and they're just going to grow. Sadly, however, the cycle can work the other way. And, and as we turn the corner in the middle of verse 19, we now see point two, the second major point. Separating truth and love destroys both. Separating truth and love destroys both. And what I mean by that is this. If you just think, I'm going to pursue one of these two things. You know what? Heck with doctrine. Forget doctrine. I'm just going to love people. Or if you think, you know, I'm just going to lock myself in my study and learn things and I'll let other people do things. I'm just going to know things. A, you're going to fail. And B, you're going to destroy the thing you're trying to hold on to. You're not even going to know things. And if you think you're going to love people without the truth, you're not really going to love people. Trying to, trying to pursue one without the other destroys both. Separating truth and love destroys both. And so inversely then, before we saw up in the first half of the notes, that faith in a good conscience leads to sound doctrine, and that then sound doctrine leads to faith in a good conscience. Well, conversely, bad consciences lead to bad doctrine. Bad consciences lead to bad doctrine. Paul writes, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And that this that's being rejected is the sound conscience, the good conscience. It's obvious enough, if you think about it, if they're rejecting both faith and a good conscience, it makes no sense that by rejecting faith, they shipwreck faith. No, they're, they're casting off 
the, the good conscience. That, that, that's not necessary. They're not holding fast to that. They're just trying to pursue knowledge, and they shipwreck the faith. If you, if you, if you try to pursue knowledge without holiness, you're, you're going to get neither. You're going to get a shipwreck. Um, one writer says, these false teachers treated the matter of maintaining spiritual integrity as a minor matter as they played fast and loose with the scriptures. When their consciences goaded them, they thrust them from them. That word implies the violence of the act required. This is no small thing. They're casting their good conscience from them. Their conscience bothers them. They're squashing it down. I don't need that. I just need knowledge. And they make a shipwreck of the faith. Bad consciences will lead to bad doctrine. I mean, this is the principle laid out in Genesis 1, that when man suppresses truth, when man embraces rebellion, what does God do? He gives them over to a depraved mind. Or the way I put it simply is this, sin will make you stupid. Sin will make you stupid. Now think about it. Adam, Adam and Eve, right? Adam is the, I'm guessing, because he's genetically perfect, he's without sin, he's made good probably the most inherently brilliant man ever created. Able to um, zoologically classify all the animals in an afternoon. This man who is told by the living God, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. This man eats the fruit and let me ask you, at that point, what is his big problem? At that point, his big problem is he's disobeyed the living God, he's broken the law, and he has brought upon himself a death penalty. What does Adam think his big problem is? And what does Adam think his big solution is? Somehow, Adam gets into his head, my big problem is I don't have any clothes. And if I could just get some leaves put together, I'd be okay. I would be okay. So what's his plan? So what's your plan? I'm, I'm going to hide from God, and then I'm going to put some leaves together, and then I'll be okay. I mean, are you crazy? Really? That's the best you got? Because sin makes you stupid. And I'm sure you all know people, or maybe you've even done it sometime, where people in sin, to justify their sin, come up with crazy excuses. Crazy doctrine. I just know that God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. I, I have peace about this. I know what the Bible says, but the Lord's given me peace about this. Really? Okay. Because bad consciences will lead to bad doctrine. See, we are whole people. You just can't compartmentalize yourself this way. And I'm going to have one section of me that's bad, but I'm going to keep this other section good. It's not going to work. It's going to contaminate. It's going to spread. Well, inversely, bad doctrine leads to bad consciences. So first we've seen that having a bad conscience, casting off your conscience, leads you to heresy. But bad doctrine itself will lead to bad consciences. Turn to 2 Timothy 2 where Hymenaeus shows up again. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent, ir, irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are 
Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. It's a similar image that Paul uses, upsetting the faith. Back in our text, it's shipwrecking faith. And because this doctrine leads to more ungodliness, verse 16. So their false teaching isn't simply some sort of esoteric mental issue. It will play itself out in wrong living. You, you, you try to separate the two and you try to pursue one without the other, you will destroy both. You will destroy both. Bad doctrine leads to bad consciences and bad consciences lead to bad doctrine. We get that same now a vicious cycle going. Maybe the easiest way to think of it is as a spiral. You're either spiraling up or you're spiraling down. And so we see this sober warning of, of the attempt to pursue one without the other. I mean, this can happen in the church. You can get people caught up in doctrinal issues, studying, you know, end times eschatology with the charts out and everything, and yet, you know, cheating on their wife. And you, seriously, that's what you think you need to be studying right now? Is eschatology? You need to be studying husbandology. Um, you need to come to our tough men class this fall. Um, what you need is truth, no doubt, but, but you can just sort of off, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not even suggesting for a second that eschatology is some novel doctrine. I'm just saying that people can get caught up even in good truth, but miss the forest for the trees, miss what's right in front of them. And, and it will corrupt, it will corrupt. And so what happens then, when you get in this cycle of bad conscience and bad doctrine, it has consequences, and that leads to point C, the shipwrecking of the faith. The shipwrecking of the faith. Now this, this is a difficult thing to translate. Literally, I know in our Bibles it says they shipwreck their faith, but in the Greek, it literally says leading to shipwreck concerning the faith. And so the commentators debate, is this their own personal faith that's being shipwrecked? Or is this some statement about the church? I think it probably is shipwrecking the faith. I mean, you think about it. A church that has these teachers that have now progressed to the level where we saw Hymenaeus is denying the resurrection. That church, as the people believe that doctrine, is going to be shipwrecked. Those people are not going to be saved, and they're going to perish as this false teaching like gangrene spreads. And... Yet it can also be their own faith as well. I, mean, I like to think of it with the ship analogy. The captain of the ship who shipwrecks the ship goes down with the ship. But they're taking people with them. They're taking people with them. Um, and there's two ways you can sink a ship. There's two ways you can shipwreck a ship. We, we all know the story of the Titanic. In uh, April 15th, 1912, the Titanic was sunk. But what you may not know is that the Titanic had received several warnings in the days previous about the icebergs. Over the days leading up to the accident, Captain Smith received general warnings of icebergs in the area and slightly altered course. Later, a message from the steamer America warned of icebergs directly in the Titanic's path. These, however, were not passed on to the captain by radio operators Jack Phillips and Harold Bridge. Later, a further warning from the vessel Masaba also failed to reach the bridge. Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee were the two seamen who actually saw the icebergs from the Titanic and raised the alarm, but by which point it was too late. And that probably is a good illustration of if you're trying to love people and not worried about doctrine, 
If you just say to yourself, my integrity is sound. My hull is strong. I don't need to worry about the information. Information's coming in. I don't need it. I don't need doctrine. My, my hull is sound. My integrity is sure. My heart is, is right. I'm just going to go love people. And I'm not going to worry about instructions and truth. Because I'm just going to love people. Well, you can shipwreck a ship like that. I mean, that was the Titanic's error. They were so overconfident in how unsinkable their ship was that they neglected vital information. And there are some people who are so confident. I just, I can go love people. I can go do ministry. I can go do things. I don't need to study and learn things. Well, you're going to sink. You're going to make a shipwreck. But you can make a shipwreck another way. A hundred years later, September 14th, 2012, the 31-meter-long tug um, Kozakolis, I think I pronounced that correctly, Kozakolis, sank in the Kozakolis River near Kozakolis, Mexico. Say that three times fast. Kozakolis, Kozakolis, Kozakolis. Um, the tug was working on an underwater construction site when the tug suddenly sank. Three of the crew on board were rescued, but the master and chief engineer perished. Reports state the river conditions were difficult due to recent rainfall. Authorities have launched an investigation um, into the state the vessel sank and have concluded that it sank due to the failure of the hull due to lack of maintenance. Now this is a boat that I'm certain had GPS, state-of-the-art electronics, information, and they just didn't take care of its personal integrity, the integrity of the vessel. I don't know, I'm, I'm just guessing at this point, but it's a good illustration. You can be so consumed with knowing things and having information. I mean, that, that tugboat had a hundredfold more information on board and accessible to it than the people of the Titanic, simply by virtue of the day and age we live in. And yet negligence was taken to the integrity of the vessel, and it sank. You can sink a boat through a lack of information, you can accidentally sail onto rocks, or you can just so neglect the care of the hull that the thing can sink even though you know exactly where you are. And the same thing holds true for these false teachers. You can, you can, you can shipwreck the faith by trying to pursue knowledge without holiness, or you can shipwreck the faith by trying to pursue holiness without knowledge. It'll work either way. Because that vicious cycle just goes down and down and down and down. They overlap, they, they connect. And so that leads to the shipwrecking of the faith. And that also then leads to church discipline. Point D. This, this downward spiral of bad consciences leading to bad doctrine and bad doctrine leading to bad consciences results in church discipline. And turn now to 1 Corinthians 5. Because um, the reason why I believe Paul's talking about church discipline when he talks about handing them over to Satan is because it's near identical language to what he uses to describe a situation in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, so close that it's, it's indisputable, really, um, that that is what he is, in fact, talking about. 1 Corinthians 5, you'll remember, is the situation where Paul has to rebuke the church at Corinth because there's a man having an ongoing affair with his stepmother, and the church is priding themselves on how tolerant they are. We are an open and affirming church, and we just pride ourselves on that. And so Paul has to rebuke them. And picking it up in verse 1, he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? 
Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment against the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Stop there. And so the end of this excommunication process, the culmination of church discipline, is referred to as handing this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And the concept works something like this. The church is the visible kingdom of God on earth. And when you excommunicate someone out of the church, you are returning them back to the visible kingdom of Satan, the God of this world. And so that's, that's what Paul is referring to. Um, due to membership, due to baptism, you were viewed as a part of the church, as a part of God's earthly visible kingdom, his people. And now we have removed you from that due to your unrepentance and you are now replaced back into the kingdom of Satan. That's what's going on here. And that's what Paul had to do with these two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, Hymenaeus shows up again. We saw that in, in 2 Timothy. Alexander may or may not be the same Alexander mentioned in 2 Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith is a pretty common name. We're not sure. But these false teachers had gotten to the point where Paul had already had to discipline them and is now making an example of them, warning Timothy. And, and I know that church discipline is something that we can be uncomfortable with. It probably should be something we're uncomfortable with. It should be difficult. But there's at least two reasons why it's important for us to do it when it needs to be done. The first is an act of love to the individual. As an act of love to the individual. And Paul says that in our text, and he says it in 1 Corinthians 5, that the goal of this excommunication is repentance. Paul says he did this to Hymenaeus and Alexander that they may learn not to blaspheme. 1 Corinthians 5, deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their soul may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. You know, John MacArthur refers to this as an extreme mercy. It's an extreme mercy. It's what you do in extreme cases as an act of love and mercy. If someone is on a bed and it is on fire and their house thrown is on fire and you try to wake them up, you don't say, well, I'll just leave them alone. You shake even harder. You might even consider slapping them to wake them up because they're in a desperate situation. And, and church discipline is like that. It's like, look, you're in sin. You're in error. You're in heresy. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. And we think this is so urgent and so important and so concerning that, that we can't fellowship with you until you deal with this. And that's because we don't think God is fellowshipping with you right now until you deal with this. And so we're going to love you by praying for you. But we're going to love you by breaking our fellowship with you until you are willing to be restored to Christ and to the church. And that's what's going on. It's a mercy. It's a kindness. It's an act of love for the individual. It might seem nicer to avoid the issue, but then they're just going on sinning. And if anything, their conscience is hardened because the Christians around me are slapping me on the back saying, and calling me brother and we're in fellowship, so it must not be that big of a deal. And the faith gets shipwrecked. It's also an act of love for the church. That's the, that's the other reason we do this. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, talks about a little leaven leavening the whole lump. And this gets back to Paul's primary concern that these, this false teaching and the inevitable godlessness that comes with it is shut down. And if you allow sin, known sin in the body to continue, it will spread. It will spread like leaven. And according to 2 Corinthians 2, like gangrene. So it's an act of love for the individual and it's an act of love for the church. And this is probably one of those places where we act in love by faith. And this is probably one of those places where you probably wouldn't arrive at this conclusion of what it means to love without Scripture telling you. It's another example of if you just want to go love people without truth, you're going to mess it up. You're going to mess it up. So, we've reached the end of our passage. I, I just want to remind us now of, of the sort of overarching theme of chapter 1. The inseparability of love and doctrine. Of love and doctrine. Of personal holiness. Truth lived out. And truth. And again, it's, it, it's kind of like the two wings of an airplane. Both are needed. And so this picture at the bottom, I want you to see the two spirals, the two circles. On the outer, the bigger circle, is the growing circle of holiness. Faith and good consciences lead to and guard sound doctrine. And sound doctrine embraced leads to godliness and holiness. And so you can either be growing in truth and love. That's the upward spiral. You can either be growing in truth and love. Or you'll be growing in sin and error. You'll be growing in a bad conscience and bad doctrine. And there is no neutral state here. There is no neutral state. Hebrews talks about drifting away from the Lord. And, you know, on a river, if you're not rowing, you're drifting. Right? There's no just staying still. And so the, the challenge I have for us today, just to think about, is this. Is, am I trying to pursue one or the other, but not both? If you are, praise God. And, and remember that you've been equipped. Remember that the Holy Spirit has given you what you need to fight. And fight the good fight boldly. Fight for the purity of ch the church. Fight for your own personal integrity. But if you're, if you're overemphasizing one of these two, or even flat out neglecting one of these two, if you're a Christian who thinks doctrine is just for heady people, or if you're one of those Christians who thinks because you know things, you don't have to live things, be warned. Be warned. I don't think Hymenaeus and Alexander set out to shipwreck anything. Certainly the crew of the Titanic didn't. I very much doubt the, uh, the crew of the Coatsacolas did either. Um, it happens slowly by degree. And we want to be those people who are growing in our knowledge of God and his word and growing in our lived out holiness. And, and I believe we are. But it's important. These things go hand in hand together and we will either be growing in truth and love or growing in sin and error. And with this, Paul brings 1 Timothy chapter 1 to a close. We're going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team up for our final song. Lord God, it is our prayer that you would cause us to grow in the knowledge of you, the knowledge of your Son, the knowledge of truth. But Lord, we also need to grow in holiness. We need to grow in Christ-likeness. We need to grow in living out our faith. And so, Lord God, we just pray that beholding your glory and your word, you would transform us from glory to glory, from one image of glory to another, that you would make us more like your Son, even today, Lord. 
that we would actively be pursuing by faith a good conscience, a sincere faith, sound doctrine, knowing your truth revealed in your word would help us to, to zealously fight for the faith once delivered to the saints. Guard us from the downward spiral where we begin to ignore our consciences, where we begin to minimize learning more about you. Guard us from the shipwreck of our faith. Lord God, we, we are utterly dependent upon you, and we rejoice knowing who you are. You are our great God. You can do these things. You can supply the grace. You will supply the grace. And so we cry out earnestly to you, our Father and our God. In Jesus' name, amen.